0: This is part two of my conversation with Greg Henrikies around his new book, A New Synthesis for Solving the Problem of Psychology, Addressing the Enlightenment Gap. Greg is a professor and core faculty member at James Madison University's clinical and school psychology doctoral program. Welcome back, Greg.
1: Hey, Jim. It's great to be with you here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, we're going to continue the conversation. And for those who remember the first or haven't heard the first, we talked a bit up front about metaphysics, ontology, philosophy, and Greg's argument is substantially wrapped around these kinds of tools. And as I was preparing for today's podcast, going deeply through the book, very carefully as I do, where I've taken many, many notes, then try to figure out what they mean, I can say I'm still a little befuddled by this, right? I'm not sure I'm seeing the need to roll out heavy philosophical machinery. Best I can tell, the core idea here is that psychology and science more generally hasn't gotten to grips with understanding mindedness in a useful way. I'd say what you're doing is, number one, you've placed mindedness in the complexification arc of the history of the universe, Uh and number two, provided some very useful and crisp definition for classes of mindedness. Mm. The first strikes me as good old emergentist complexity science, right? Mm -hmm. So essentially reductionist science plus relativity plus complexity. Mm. And number two strikes me as the useful it's kind of a useful, but not definitive variety of small o ontology of the sort that every science does, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a necessary, but not particularly philosophical job of, you know, making the categories clear enough to be useful. Mm-hmm. So what am I missing here?
1: I really don't know that you're missing all that much, but it really depends on sort of the doorway that you're entering. But I do make the case as follows in the book, and that is, is that the standard natural science perspective, say take from Big history or uh, Sean Carroll's big picture. The argument is is that, oh yeah, we can just apply natural science and the empirical categories and logical relations in and of itself are sufficient. My argument is that that's not the case. And what the reason that it's not the case is what we see is the multiplicity of different definitions, and I am proposing a new cosmology, meaning a new way to think about the evolution of complexification across four different dimensions, that can be arguably a sort of kind of small ontological argument. And to say that I'm engaged then in a descriptive metaphysical structure, all that means is, hey, these are the concepts and categories for my cosmology. And then this is how I'm going to understand what I know about the world, how I know epistemologically, and what I'm claiming the world to be ontologically. And so to me, I don't see, and I'm not doing a Heideggerian deep dive into metaphysics and some unbelievable, like, okay, what's the ultimate nature of being itself? But let's face it, Jim, it was the case that when science got started, it was natural philosophy. And there are many philosophers and scientists who argue that, hey, that connection for clarity of thought may be something that is worth holding onto. And given my history in psychology, it certainly was the case that I got a lot clearer about the argument I was making. At least certainly that felt way, way to me.
0: All right. I'm going to make a last comment, and then we're going to jump into the book, right? Okay. Listeners to Jim Rocho know that I often say, when I hear the word metaphysics, I reach for my pistol. And unfortunately, I don't have a pistol with me today, but I do have a nice, big, ugly knife, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess my final thought is that this confusion about mindedness and consciousness, more generally, is very, very reminiscent of the confusion that biology had around life, uh-huh. right? You know, famously, and surprisingly, until the early 20th century, the concept of Elan Vital, if that's how you pronounce it, was still a part of the argument in biology. Is there something special about life that is not included in the, the natural sciences in some principled way? It requires a magical ha- a rabbit to be pulled hmm. out of a hat, essentially. Right. And it strikes me that what you're doing, and the way I see things, which of course doesn't mean they're right, but it's a good hint, right? <laughs> <laughs> is that Mindedness and consciousness and all that uh, has the same relationship to complexification as life does. Just as, as you as we'll point out when you get into your tree of knowledge, that, that fits your model as well. Totally. And so, anyway, it, it's all just science as far as I'm concerned. Don't need no stinking philosophy and anything. If we dephilosophize it, so much the better.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, that you situate yourself that way. Other people will sort of disagree. You and I are fundamentally in agreement in the sense that what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get the right grammar on naturalism, okay? And, and what I'm emphasizing is, and I emphasize this in the book, and I build this off of Lawrence Calhoun, a philosopher who basically says, philosophy of mine broke the world into matter and mind. And that's a real problem. And we inherit that grammar. I'm trying to get us clear that we inherit a grammar. And I'm trying to get us clear that we can introduce a new grammar of energy, matter, life, mind, and culture. And that's a much richer complexity science kind of grammar that should be woven throughout our basic understanding and vocabulary for the world.
0: Yeah, And oddly enough, I agree, right? <laughs> I just wouldn't label it the same way, but that's all right, but that's all right. You know, potato, potato, right? <laughs> Lovely. A brief message for our listeners. Hey folks, y'all may be interested to know that Greg is organizing a conference. It's called Consilience, Unifying Knowledge and Orienting Toward a Wisdom Commons. It'll be held online. March 17th and 18th as a Zoom event and it's free to the public. I'll be one of the speakers along with several other Jim Rutt Show guests, including John Vervecki, Jordan Hall, Zach Stein, Greg Thomas, Lenny Rachel Anderson, Alexander Bard, Lehman Pascal, Max Anderson, and Alexander Beiner. 40 presenters overall and it looks to be a great event. Again, Zoom conference free to the public March 17th and 18th there's a link to register on the episode page at JimRuttShow.com. Now, back to our show. Before we jump into the next big meaty part of the book, let's review a couple of a few, four of your key constructs and try to keep these as brief as possible, sure. but not so short as people won't know what we're
1: talking about. Okay. Uh, first, the enlightenment gap. The enlightenment gap is the argument that we do not have a synoptic philosophy, meaning a synthetic integrative philosophy that coherently places mind in relationship to matter. I was just listening to um, John Verbecki after Socrates. He went through that neuroscientists, artificial intelligence researchers, psychologists, anthropologists, linguistics, all have different conceptions of mind. So there you go. You have a wide variety of different domains, different, no good definitional system. And also how do we place scientific knowledge in relationship to social knowledge? The argument is there's an absence of understanding that does that coherently. The gap is in our knowledge to how to do that. I'm going to address that and resolve that. At least that's the proposition in the book. All right. BM3. BM3 refers to the behavior, mind, mind, mind problem. And what that is, is it reviews the different definitions of what we mean in psychology by mind, identifies behavior, the behaviorist tradition. It identifies neurocognitive meaning of mind, the information instantiated within the nervous system and processed by it. It means the phenomenological subject of conscious experience. And it means self-conscious justification, the way Rene Descartes thought of mind. So BM3 is, hey, people use the word mind or mental process and mean any one of those four things. And that creates a lot of confusion and equivocation. And I characterize that as the core problem of psychology.
0: Now, compare and contrast what you would describe as methodological behaviorism, which is how you represent psychology today, versus mental behaviorism, which you propose as an alternative.
1: Exactly. So if you go in, take Psych 101, psychology is a science of behavior and mental process. It's a science because it applies the methods it applies the methods to behavior, which science can see, and infers mental processes when it can and then it applies a slew of research methods. What that means then is that the science of psychology is defined by the methods of science, hence methodological behaviorism, and it's a def- because it's a science, because it applies the methods. But if you ask what it means in the world that you're referring to as a psychologist, you get a massive amount of incoherent disagreement or chaotic fragment of pluralism. That's the problem of psychology referenced by the BM3. Mental behaviorism switches it and says there should be things in the world, minded animals and minded human beings, that I'm going to define, that we can reference and have an understanding about what those are. I call that the ontology. But a little o-ontology is the thing in the world that is the concern of psychologists. Minded behavior patterns of animals into humans is what I'm arguing the science of psychology should be about. That's an ontological definition defined by the thing in the world. And then we should bring the methods of science to better understand minded behavior patterns. Great, and then the last one before we jump in is justification theory. Justification system theory is the idea that propositional language was a tipping point, gave rise to question-answer dynamics, that ultimately was generative, generating systems of justification that coordinated people. I argue that the culture-person plane of existence that emerges out of the minded animal plane is best understood as networks, structure-functional networks of justification. I also argue that the dynamics of justification reveal themselves in the sense when we look at human consciousness and we could see that we sit ourselves on a primate animal this kind of experiential structure, have an ego that tries to justify to ourselves privately, and then we sit on a social stage. Our persona and try to justify ourselves that way. That's reminiscent of Freud, but this places it in a very coherent evolutionary complexification model. And then it enables us to see what it was that enabled us to transform from primates into persons.
0: Uh, Right. Actually, that's a perfect setup for now jumping back into the book where we left off, which is one of your core parts of your very extensive argument here is the description of something called the tree of knowledge system.
1: Go. Go. So I, in 1996, I had was working on this and had this insight about justification. And I realized that I, when I was using the word mental process, I recognized that there were two fundamentally different kinds of mental process, justificatory processes, and then the nonverbal, perceptual, and emotional processes. And so I had a particular frame of reference for understanding the emergence of humans as culture, person, beings. And so I was working on that. I was and, and really excited about that. And that was going to be my whole career. It's like, this is a really interesting idea about what is it that made us uh, go from apes? What's a, What's the big missing link? And this is a conceptual structure that gives rise to the missing link. And I thought about it as this sort of funnel idea. And then one day in August of 1997, I was stoned. I was hanging out and really basically had a moment, I think, of sort of transcendent Logos Insight. I literally drew out a diagram as a circle at the bottom, and then out of that comes a cone that I label chemistry. Out of that comes a cone of complexification that I label life. Out of that comes a cone that I label mind slash sentience. And out of that comes a cone that uh, that I label culture. And then, and what that gave me is a way to track the frequency of complexification. And it gave me a vision logic for the way in which complexification has happened. Now you may know what is complexification? It's the way parts get synced up to form holes, which then become parts of greater holes. So we talk about particles into atoms, atoms into molecules, molecules into cells, and cells into multicells, they go into animals, and then ultimately networks of primates that get turned into groups of persons. And you say, well, doesn't a lot of people have that as a frame of reference? The answer is yes. But what this shows is not only is it a stacked line of complexification, but what we have here is four different dimensions of complexification also. And what that's going to do is it's going to help us understand both the continuity and the qualitative discontinuity when we make jumps from matter to life, life to minded animals, and minded animals into cultured persons and my experience was once I pulled this behavioral frequency lens off the world, I could see so much. I could see this sort of universe of complexification in a different light.
0: And so, why don't you lay out for us in some detail the four cones? Uh, you know, you can put considerably less detail on the first two, but it's, you know, just draw the picture and also explain why cones, right? Which is, which is actually very interesting.
1: Right. So, what what are these cones? Well, they what they are, do basically. Think about them cones as sort of representing the radius of the unit of complexification. What do I mean by that? Well, if we start at the Big Bang, you basically get a collapse of everything into a sort of a singular super force. Okay, and then there's a differentiating process, a hot inflationary Big Bang, and out of that singular super force, you get different kinds of forces like electromagnetic, strong, weak, nuclear, gravity, if you want to call it a force, and then you get the you know, fields, quantum fields into particles, and then particles will coalesce ultimately into atoms. So we get electrons coalescing into neutrons, I mean, electrons, and then you get protons, neutrons, and you get the formation of helium, hydrogen. So what that would be is an expansion of the matter cone with a representation of a hydrogen atom is more complicated than an electron. And then you get into molecules, which have larger organizational structures Of pattern. So what it represents then is the expansion of units of complexification. That's the matter cone. Then we jump over to life and you've done some wonderful podcasts on where life comes from. And the argument here is is that there is an emergent propagation of different possibilities that have some kind of variation, selection, and retention. This is the mystery of the origin of life. But what we get ultimately is we get things like lipids, we get the capacity of lipids to form a membrane. We get the capacity of a structure to pull in, say, an information protocell. And ultimately, there's some kind of replication and variation and selection. What happens there then is through variation, selection, and retention is a propagation of different kinds of complexified cells. Initially, these are single cells like bacteria, and but they will coalesce into colonies. So you get groups of cells that are behaving in certain ways. Initially, they're not multicellular. Once they become eukaryotic cells, that means there's a fusion between different kinds of cells, that complexified structure is a big and maybe once-in-a-lifetime jump. (laughs) And, And then that represents a whole nother layer of sort of the radius of a eukaryotic cell on my graph would be much bigger than a bacteria cell. So you'd be coming coming up the cone. cone. Coming up the cone, exactly, coming up the cone. And then we get things like multicellular plants. You get fungi that demonstrate all sorts of complex, adaptive, systemic behavior across them. They have many different systems in there. Complexification means there's different integration, differentiation, and coordination across the whole. That's what complexification means. Then, so that then takes place for 3 billion years in relation, know, a lot of it's at the single cellular level, then all of a sudden eukaryotics, they take off and then you get the multicellular structure. Then at about 550 million years ago, we see the Cambrian explosion, okay? Prior to that, what we have is a distributed neural network system. Arguably, some of it's devoted to motor movement, some of it's devoted to sense detection. You see things like jellyfish, you see things like sponges. But within a period of about 10 million years, depending on who you ask, but a pretty narrow period in geological time, we see the explosion of complex active bodies and brains. And this is going to be mindedness. And in terms of complexification, what the nervous system is doing is it's modeling the emerging animal and its complex body parts and the environment and creating a hierarchical arrangement. Which John Verbeke would say then affords a recursive relevance realization so that it can behave as an agent in an arena and then engage in relationships to other animals in terms of prey and predation, mating, territory defense, et cetera. This is the emergence of mindedness. And we can trail the evolution of mindedness. It starts off with a pretty basic set of body plans that really stay pretty consistent in many ways. But we do get things basically like crabs. And then we get the development of vertebrates like fish. And then the fish climb out of the land, and then we get things like reptiles. And then by reptiles, we move on up the scale into mammals, birds, and ultimately the cone of complexification, meaning there's an increasing capacity of the complex active segmented bodies and brain systems to build into different intelligent niches of minded behavior and sort of higher animals as we go up the stack into mammals and ultimately primates. So this is the minded dimension. And I'm arguing that the right relation of psychology is to ask questions about minded behavior of animals. That's what I call basic psychology. And then finally, there's another explosion. I was working on this problem of justification. The argument was that humans, as hominids, were able to sync up, develop initial symbolic tagging, say 500,000 years ago, and then finally develop a tipping point of propositions, question-answer dynamics, and that explodes the generation of culture, capital C, which are justification systems. And ultimately, what the diagram also shows is justification systems evolve, ultimately giving rise to science as a particular kind of justification. And that was the insight moment where I actually have on the original diagram lines going back, one through philosophy, one through mathematics, and says, oh, we developed a way of really thinking about abstract logic that then allowed us to come back and map the evolution of complexification as a human knower in the universe. All right.
0: beautiful <laughs> there's uh, 13.4 billion years of history and uh, down in 5 minutes there you go now of course several of these things are not what i'd call crisp for instance mind you know we think about as you say a jellyfish or a sponge actually it's still arguable whether sponges had neurons or not or whether they used some other signaling the early ones mm-hmm. but jellyfish probably did and probably neurons came into the current best thinking is neurons came into existence just before the Cambrian explosion, yep. though just before it might be a hundred million years, still very murky. But even on what's something clearly on the other side, let's see like the famous C. elegans, right? That everybody uh-huh. uses in experimental development of ne- it's
1: got 302 neurons, I believe. Exactly. <laughs> 302, I believe, is the correct yep, number.
0: Yep. And you know it is it minded? I It's a complex adaptive system that uses a 302 neuron network to operate as an agent in an arena, but yes. only got 302 neurons. So it's really early in the idea of mindedness. Totally.
1: Exactly. So you can, and, and there's a continuity. If you look carefully at the diagram that I put up in a circle, which means that there's a continuity and we should see a continuity from sponges and jellyfish into planaria worms into sea elegans. And then ultimately what I like to say is, yeah, there is a continuity. There are different elements that, and so it's not quite as sharp, for example, as the continuity between matter and life. But if we, Who knows about exactly what are the intermediate forms that gave rise to life? There could be a whole.
0: There almost certainly, almost certainly was, unless some guy with a beard came down and said, "Let there be life." There had to have been some intermediate forms. Exactly.
1: So, so, so there had to be continuity. There's continuity. I'll say there's continuity between primates and persons. Every time you give birth to a child, you're going to see. I mean, to a new infant, you're going to see the evolution of a primate into a person. Where do you draw the line? Okay. So there's definitely going to be intermediate categories. All I'm saying is that brains and complex active bodies that gets sparked by the Cambrian explosion, we get animal on animal predation. That's when you're going to get full mindedness where you get a sensory motor looping system operating in a body that gives rise to a totally different kind of movement structure. And those, of course, there's definitely intermediate forms. That's the whole point of a, of a continuous complexification process there have to be. But I am saying that the thing takes off in the Cambrian explosion, probably because the uh, development of complex active bodies and predation relation that enables the system to engage in sort of an arms race. And all of a sudden now you've got brain body activity going that I would call mindedness.
0: Yeah, you know, like I mentioned this last time, one of the things I love, recent insight that I had, I think it was from Bobby Azarian in his book, mm. which is whenever there's a top predator in a food web, you've just opened up a niche for a new species to develop to eat that guy, right? Right. And so, right. And from the, so you think that's happening from the very beginning, the first animal that's thinking it's got its shit together, eating bacteria, nobody's going to mess with him. Oops, something evolved to eat him. Oh, totally. Fuck, and I right? think that's
1: the Cambrian Explosion, sort of a tap predation, meaning from Stuart Kaufman, that the adjacent possible is opening up. And with these kinds of movements that are novel, and they open up a whole adaptive landscape that evolution then fills in and propagated into.
0: Okay. And then also just make sure the picture is complete as you show cones coming out of cones. You're still like the life cone, for instance, is still there that's not mindful, right? We have trees, we have fungi, we have uh, bacteria, et cetera. So that
1: Right. And everything that is minded has to also be alive in this definition. So this would then, it's important to know that mindedness has to be embedded in living. Um, you And you can lose mindedness, you can be anesthetized and still be alive. But mindedness is coming out of life. And of course, not everything that's alive becomes minded, trees, and they demonstrate a lot of complexification and complexity, but they're just not minded in the way, they don't have a sensory motor looping system. Gotcha.
0: Now, you had a very interesting interlude where you suggested that your model helps resolve the apparent gross contradiction between Freud and Skinner. (laughs) Now, those would not be my two favorite guys, uh, uh, because I think they're both wrong in grotesquely fundamental ways. But you did a kind of cool thing about how this model can be used to, if not reconcile them, at least understand them in a broader context. Why don't you do that for
1: us? Lovely, yeah. In fact, this is the first paper I ever uh, made on it. It's basically, I'm saying there is a complexification stack that would align very much with you. And basic, But when we look at the joint points between life, living organisms, minded animals, minded animals and cultured portions, within these cones, you say, well, where do they connect? There's a thing called a joint point, and that's a complexity building feedback loop and ultimately what this model says is not only is there a description between these different dimensions but it also posits that there is a way to understand the emergence of mindedness out of life that thinks called behavioral investment theory we can flag that but ultimately the idea is going to be hey i can understand the emergence of this structure by basically bridging to B.F. Skinner and tying him back to essentially a John Verveke kind of notion of cognitive science on the one hand to explain how agent-arena relations emerge, and then ultimately you go on up to primates and you become talking primates, and then you have to justify your actions on the social stage, and the argument is you got a persona, an ego, and an animal self. Well, that is core with Freud's central insights. So I'm taking Freud's central insights and Skinner's central insights, and I'm aligning them on a physical, biological, psychological, and social picture of consilience. Okay, cool.
0: Now, as I mentioned in the first part, this book is pretty damn audacious. Some, just I love these moves that Greg makes here. So in this section on the tree of knowledge, you also put forth a proposed definition for the institution of psychology. That you would suggest. We'll, we'll get into this in considerably more fine grained part when we get to foreshadowing people, the periodic table of behavior, which is my favorite part of this book, probably. But anyway, so let's audaciously tell psychology what it is.
1: Right. What I want to suggest by this model, what this says, is that psychology is errantly straddled two different domains. It dips into the animal and then tries to manage the human. It calls it, at least traditional non behavioral psychology, says, oh, we're studying mental process through behavior behavior. My argument is you have to divide the dimensions of existence. The ontology, Jim, small o ontology, there are minded animals in the world. And we should have basic cognitive behavioral neuroscientists and ethologists, people that go out in the world, and they study animals in nature. And we should also study them in the lab. And we should understand how they learn, how they communicate, how they adjust. That's the behavior of minded animals. That should be basic psychology, the science of minded behavior, you know, minded animals. Then there's a subset, human psychology. Human psychology is not redundant. (laughs) Human psychology is science of human mental behavior or human mindedness. It basically moves up into the dimension because it's gonna involve self-conscious justification, which is a game changer, the emergence of persons. I also argue that human psychology should be paired with the social sciences and basic psychology should be congruent like ethology with the rest of the natural sciences. I make an argument for why that is, but fundamentally it creates a split in what psychology's identity should be, not in a way that obliterates it, but says, hey, you should have a basic and a human branch in relationship to the domain.
0: Cool. I guess this is a good a time to bring it up as any. You mentioned it a few different places, and that is in your definition or your suggested definition of psychology. You also talk a fair bit about where clinical psychology fits in there. And I will confess to always having been a bit befuddled by the fact that when you go to a psychology department, you find clinicians and neuroscientists and cognitive scientists and people that torture lab rats all in the same department. <laughs> that is true. And, and but yet when you look at, say, medicine and biology, they, there's a biology department and there's a med school. Obviously, the docs have to learn a lot of biology, but they are cleanly separate disciplines. Do you think that psychology ought to take that next step and just say that clinical psychologists are a profession like doctoring and not like another department in the biology department?
1: In 2004, I had co-authored a paper with Robert Sternberg, Bob Sternberg, who was recently APA president, and we outlined what's called unified professional psychology. I would call it now a unified health service psychology, and exactly the term we use, I use as a psychological doctor, and I train. That's what I train. as my professional day job. You come in and you talk to me. What's the difference between a doctor and a scientist? A doctor is there to affect change, Jim. A doctor has values. A doctor has goals. You've done your job well. If you get a good outcome, you make a difference in the world, and you have to do that toward a valued state of being. So your job is to have skill to make a difference toward values the skill of a scientist is to get at describing and explaining the way the world works. Those are two totally different value structures. Um, what makes a good psychological doctor is not the same thing that makes a good psychological scientist. So yes, I actually advocate for this in the end of the book when I'm really describing how I would lay out psychology. I emphasize really there are three great branches of the psychology as a whole, two in the science side, one, the health service psychology, which is regulating the way in which we would, we and, this, and I say this because this is my identity, Clinical counseling school psychologists enter into the world as licensed professionals, help people to improve well-being as a psychological doctor, just as medical doctors do. The last thing I'll say is the other professions get this, Jim. Physics is different than engineering. Biology is different than medicine. Sociology is different than social work. In my discipline, we have psychology and psychology.
0: Yep. And then you also have the psychiatrist to confuse things even further. Well, right. There
1: are medical doctors that are trying to do mental illness or do mental illness through a medical physician training system. Right, I think I'm going to defer
0: talking about the emergence of social science from physical science until we get to the uh, periodic table. But let's go to a last section here is you do lay out a quite interesting conversation on how your model is reasonably congruent with common sense understanding. Of things. But I would also point out before we go there that that's not necessarily a requirement for good science. For instance, uh, so. when I go out and talk to my hunting buddies, I cannot get a good description of quantum mechanics from them.
1: <laughs> totally not.
0: Of course, I couldn't get a decent su- description from Richard Feynman either, who, would, who famously <laughs> said, anyone who claims to understand quantum mechanics obviously doesn't. <laughs> so tree of knowledge and common sense understanding.
1: Right. So uh, every, every society known, we, I reviewed this with a colleague of mine and Dave Geary, and he published this in 2005, you know, anthropologically, every known society divides the world up into inanimate objects, living organisms, animals that behave differently in persons. When my daughter was four, she gave me a wonderful picture of my first book of a little circle representing a rock, a little stick with a little flower around it representing a plant and then a little dog with ears and four legs, and then finally a person. She goes, look, daddy, I drew your work, rocks, plants, animals, people. The argument is that this is the uh, basically Aristotle's scales of nature. It's an old and useful category that then breaks down because our knowledge of science does say, hey, what about jellyfish and viruses? And I talk about this at other times in the book. Does this really fit? And, and the old category sort of had it as absolute categories not emergent evolutionary consistent categories that were continuous across time. When we learned about that, the categories tended to collapse and we didn't have clear points of, of carving nature at its joints. What the tree of knowledge does is allow us to remember that and its validity in, update it with modern science and the continuity, and also understand the discontinuity with the joint points. Having both of those allows us the kind of grammar to grip the world. And certainly it's not a requirement that science is common sense, but when it aligns with common sense and makes a whole lot of sense in general, that's uh, that's not a bad thing. All right. One last thing
0: before we move on, actually. As you well aware, there are multiple places where people can cut the emergence rise. Totally. My good friend, and actually the guy that I can blame for more than anybody getting me involved in complexity science was Harold Morowitz wrote a well-known book called the emergence of everything, where he lays out, I think it's 27, maybe it's 28 layers from the Mm -hmm. big bang to, you know, religion. I think it was the top one. And, you know, there's other places you could obviously cut. Like, I think that, the eukaryotes is mm-hmm. a huge jump
1: and it's a jump in complexification too yeah uh,
0: you know big 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 jump of I mean, it big like, jump like, how yeah. did the fuck did that happen right not uh, as a mystery yeah. A and, as a, yeah and and so and this gets back to our earlier conversation about big O ontology versus small O ontology. How do you come up with your four versus other possible cuts? Totally. And, and are they fundamental big O like electrons <laughs> and protons? Or are they small O like, all right, it could be 28, it could be five, it could be three. But I find four to be more useful for my work.
1: Right. Well, I, I wondered, it took me a little while, and I mentioned this in the book, took me a little while after I drew this out and had this moment of like, oh, this is really useful. Then I was like, what the fuck are these actual cones really representing? And I, I characterized them as complexity. Originally, I would now realize that's complexification. But what exactly is happening? Why am I drawing life as a totally different cone? And why am I drawing mind? And why am I drawing culture? And what I realized is actually these are drawn as new complex adaptive planes of existence that are tied together by fundamentally new processes, characterized by information processing. I'll just say information processing within, like within a cell, and communication networks between them to give rise to an entire pattern, an entire living ecology, animal behavioral ecology, human person ecology of culture, a network dimensional structure of information processing and communication. We see this in the RNA DNA structure and the chemical communication between cells. We see it in the neuro information processing structure and the sensory motor communication between animals. And of course, language itself is its communication information processing system. So each one of these cuts of life, mind, and culture is a tightly associated with the emergence of a novel open information processing system, the nervous system and language on top of the DNA cell system.
0: Cool. And one of my favorite thinkers. David Krakauer, president of the Santa Fe Institute, and one of the most amazing human beings I know, he defines his work as the study of the history of information processing in the universe. So he uses the same lens
1: you do. All right. I'd be, I'd be interested to explore with him then the difference between information processing at the matter dimension versus the other three. Uh, but that I would certainly, I argue the base of it's an energy information implicate order. And so I think I would be very much in line with his thinking.
0: Yeah, well, I'd love to connect you two, actually. We, in fact, we ought to get you out to the Santa Fe Institute sometime and give at least part of the, of the talk that's implied <laughs> in this book, since probably we can't uh, dedicate ten days to uh, to it. But <laughs> I all love right, that. okay. Yeah, I think uh, you, that you you would hit them off. They would argue with you, but that's all right. That's what we do. <laughs> oh, out this there. is
1: science, Jim. Come that's on. what we do
0: out there. All right, let's move on to the next section. You paid a fairly bleak picture and i still think it's a straw man but i'll let you make your case of the poor college student who goes oh shit it's just all jiggling atoms and then i love this quote because this is the classic obnoxious physicist ernst rutherford who was prepared to have said all science is either physics or stamp collecting right right so yeah right. that's this extreme reductionist argument it, does it does anybody actually believe that shit after they're 14
1: well, I mean, so I think people have believed it for a long time. You yourself talk about naive Newtonian. And yep. there are a number of people that believed in naive Newtonian for, I think, a long time. Certainly before Einstein, the, there was an emerging physical Reductive determinism, structure. And once that gets baked into an institution or uh, identity, I think it's got still long echoes of reach. As I say in the book, do I think most scientists are, you know, sort of naive or to physical reductionists? No, but I can certainly fail to find people that are making that argument in various ways, and I highlight that. And I basically also want to trail the evolution of science from a sort of naive, reductive physicalism into one version of emergent naturalism that I think is very popular. And then I'm going to argue that uh, the tree of knowledge gives a slightly different version of that emergent naturalism.
0: Cool. Cool. And then the other one that you bash, which I love to bash, is the Cartian dualism. (laughs)
1: Right. Well, Cartesian dualism, you know, famously, one of the famous rationalists and scientists, uh, precursors of whatever you want to decide when science begins, Rene Descartes, is obviously most famous for his I Think Therefore I Am. He's gaining access to early mechanistic notions about the way the world works and has to decide there has to be a mechanism inside the material world. and he knows he behaves quite differently than that and basically presupposes a dual or substance world. And I argue that, yes, it's most people these days, that's a really unworkable, the metaphysics gem of that are unworkable <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or yeah. just I it's not- bullshit. No. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me on that a little bit because obviously you know so much about this, but for the audience who don't know this, essentially the Cartesians viewed that mind was more or less, the equivalent of spirit in the religious sense, but even if you didn't believe in religion, it was still a a thing that's out there that's not physically connected and is not directly emergent from the physical. And then, of course, there's the famous problem of how does this spirit, this geist, interact with the body? And he idiotically proposed it was the pineal gland, right, as the as the mechanism for the geist of the ghost in the machine to talk to the machine. And frankly, there are still, we talk about you know, folk psychology, I would expect 50% of the people walking around in the ta- town of Stanton, Virginia, believe in some loose form of Cartesian dualism. So while it's fortunately Dead in the sciences in the in the pop world, it, it's still out there. So sure. let's turn let's turn back to your claim. Further, let's assume we're not talking about Flatland radical reductionists. We're not talking about the Cartes- Cartesian. We don't want to get the cart before the horse, right? <laughs> 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 but you also suggest that your tree of knowledge system is significantly different than the way big history is usually told.
1: Right. So one of the things is really, well, how do you think about in terms of emergence? Okay. And so there's what I would call weak versions of emergence and that's aggregate forms emerge. So for example, a bunch of molecules get together, they have fluidity, they don't have fluidity by themselves, but they as a group, they have fluidity and they'll carve a river and we have to describe the world as a river. And that's a weakly emergent System that is a function of the aggregates that then have properties that don't have, that don't uh, appear at the individual level. And then we need vocabulary to describe those. That's what I would call a weak emergent view. And virtually everybody says, yes, that is what happens. And we do need vocabulary. And uh, somebody like Sean Carroll will say that, that we can apply this to simply things like cats. Cats do not exist in the standard theory of elementary particle physics, but cats are real in the world and we need a vocabulary. Now, then the question is, well, what is the core ontology? And then what's also at a more little low ontology, what are the core causal forces that we need in order to explain the behavior of cats, okay? And so the, the issue here is I, I think a lot of folks like Sean Carroll wonder about the emergence of novel causal properties, novel causal properties, okay? I argue that there's an emergence of a different kind of information processing system that has irreducible causal aspects to it, wet life. And that's so what I would argue is when I listen to Sean Carroll, I feel like he's got one big cone and he's realizing that there's different levels of complexity like cats and he has to point to them, but he's not arguing that there's a fundamentally emergent new kind of causation. What the tree of knowledge suggests is actually these information processing communication networks, they're actually sort of what some people might call top down causation. I like to call them information causation. And they give rise to new causal principles. And those things then cannot be reduced to the language of physics. And so it's a more, it's not strong emergence in any m- a magic sort of way, but it's a stronger emergence than many sort of weak emergent naturalist views. Yeah, I will say
0: at the Santa Fe Institute, people discuss a lot top down causation and exactly what is it you know for uh, to give a naive example of top down causation the random bag of chemicals in my body would be very unlikely to randomly go to the liquor store that's four blocks away right you know per quantum mechanics there's some unbelievably small chance they'd all suddenly hop there but Effectively, in the history of the universe, it never happens. On the other hand, up if in my head, I say, you know, I need another bottle of scotch, and it basically it bubbles back down the stack. And oh, guess what? That bag of atoms gets dragged to the liquor store. And, that's right, and that's clearly a thing. Anyone who and, and I think this is, you know, this is what I think of the meat of the matter. Anyone who doesn't think that the thought I want to go to the liquor store is part of the real world is just wrong. Right. In fact, that one statement summarizes your book
1: in a sentence. Right? <laughs> there you go. That, and, <laughs> and I'm arguing, and I'm arguing that actually we can nest that argument in information processing communication networks that are then mediated by life, mind, and cultural processes with different kinds of information languages, and that's where the that's where the meat of the action is. Absolutely. And if we all had that as our grammar, we'd be in good shape.
0: Right. And, and as you say, you, you put it in the full stack. It's a full stack explanation. A full stack explanation. And, and I like sure. it. I like that. A lot. And you call it, just so people know this, the worldview number C. Scientific worldview C. And and, uh, truthfully, I have never talked to Sean Carroll. I actually should have him on the show, but he is affiliated with the Santa Fe Institute. So it would not surprise me that if I push hard enough, we'd find that he's a, a worldview
1: C kind of guy, but I'm not sure. I think there's a lot of ambiguity here. And I believe that the tree of knowledge and its description and contrasting that with one set of cones is the way to get at the vision logic difference between... The different conceptions of causation that people have, and I would love to have those conversations. And I will make a case, of course, for the differential cone model. All right, I'm
0: going to have to get. I'm going to have to. I've been meaning to do this. I'm going to reach out to Sean Carroll, and I will challenge him with this. All right, let's move on a little bit into more philosophy.
1: We can skip over this if you really want, Jim. (laughs) No, no. no.
0: Actually, actually, I really want to go here. Uh, One of the reasons I do these podcasts is I learn about new rabbit holes to go down. And I've never heard of this dude, Lawrence Cahoon, before. And I'm not probably the only guy (laughs) because I was sniffing around today. Say, all right, who is this dude? Well, he doesn't have a Wikipedia entry. And but nor does he have a Stanford encyclopedia of philosophy entry. And trying to find much out about him is hard, actually, without actually going and reading his book, which I have ordered, by the way. So you've just either wasted five hours of my time or taught me something important here, which I'm going to get into. But you go into a really deep dive of Cahoonian, is that how you pronounce it? Cahoon? I believe so. Cahoonian philosophy as being strong, aligned with your work. And as far as you know, the guy doesn't doesn't know about your work. Is that correct?
1: Well, he didn't. Right. So he published The Orders of Nature in 2014. He's a philosopher. The entire book basically is an articulation from a philosopher saying, hey, the general natural science view needs to be brought through the lens of what he calls systematic metaphysics He critiques what he calls the Cartesian bipolar disorder of matter versus mind and argues that we should learn from natural science and emergence, but bring a particular philosophical view about concepts and categories and track the organization of nature. And he argues that there are five orders of nature. The ground of what he calls the physical order grounds out in Big Bang and quantum field that would correspond to what I call energy. Then he calls it the matter order, which basically corresponds to chemistry and the normal Newtonian world. Then he calls the living order, then the mental and cultural order. So he generated as a philosopher an analysis instead of matter versus mind, five orders of nature independently of either big history or my thought, and argued we need a systematic metaphysical picture grounded in nature, grounded in science for a big picture view to transcend matter versus mind so he's argument He's not super well-known. He was president of the American Metaphysical Society in 2018. I actually found him at that time, had just read his book a year or whatever, reached out to him. We had a number of really positive conversations. I shared where I was coming from, from psychology. And the bottom line was the convergence between the two perspectives, a philosopher concerned with organizing the natural world, and me as a psychologist and wondering about a big picture view of science that could hold psychology, came up with remarkably similar and parallel and convergent pictures. Cool. Now, one
0: thing I'm not sure about, and you know, m- maybe I find something useful in Cahoon, or maybe he's just confused, which is the distinction between physicalism and naturalism. So here's, you know, here's one of his straw mans that he puts into the mouth of most scientific naturalists. Naturalism is not metaphysical at all. Nature is what we are left with when we abandon metaphysics. Yay! Right? You know, I'd suggest that physicalism might fit that definition, but not naturalism. Could you make that distinction between a physicalist and a naturalist?
1: Yeah. So for me, the physicalist, corresponds more to uh, reductive physicalism and more of a sort of a weak emergent position. The naturalism says, hey, the word physicalism, while everything that is living is is also physical. Life is not just physical. And it's not just a continuity of complexification. There's actually a fundamental thing that I'm looking at at the organization of living that I need a biological scientist to map. And it's not that we just don't know it well enough. It's actually sustained at the higher order, top-down level of information processing communication. And that's where the pattern structure is ontologically in the world. You can't dissipate it down. And you have to hold it at that level. So for me, what I'm saying is if uh, energy, matter, life, mind, and culture are these different dimensions, to be a naturalist is to grab all of those, to be of one world. But to say, yeah, it's a basically, it's a less reductive, more holistic stance is the short answer.
0: So you'd actually disagree with Cahoon where he's trying to straw man the naturalist perspective. But I'm with you, right? As we said, the core sentence that explains everything you're saying is that this non- Hard physics stuff is real, right? Mm-hmm. The, but my desire exactly. to go to the liquor store is as real as this glass here that I'm taking a drink out of. They're both equally real. They're just different manifestations of reality, and they have a different organizational structure. So, anyway, I let's hope you,
1: move. I, I'd be here to. Uh, if you read his book, I'd be curious to see what you think.
0: I'll definitely welcome. I mean, I did. I bought it and I sniffed the introduction. And I said, "Yeah, this would be interesting." I might make piss me off, but it'd be worth reading. Now let's move on to the next big move that okay. Greg makes. This, this boy likes the big stuff. He's not screwing <laughs> around here. Uh, uh, you basically, I think you might actually be right. This is the scary thing, is that you've defined behavior as the central concept in the natural sciences. This is a gigantic
1: claim, right? So let's do it. All righty. Yes. So what I will argue here is that the natural sciences emerge both ontologically, epistemologically, and metaphysically, meaning the concepts and categories that science brings to bear. What does it mean to be a natural science? In some ways, Jim, this is super simple. What do you do as a natural science? I'm an observer, and I'm going to model any number of different observers. The idea is the world's out there. I can gather information about that world data. I build models about the way the world unfolds, which means I'm going to identify entities in relationship to other things nested across systems, see how they change, develop measurements of how they change, develop models of that change, And then develop theories and eliminate bad ideas and try to build off the better ones and get as accurate as possible, never foundationally knowing what exactly it is that I'm looking at. What does that mean? It means you've got an observer tracking behavior that is potentially intersubjectively objective, meaning you have trained observers, learn how to measure entities and change then model, first describe those entities, and then develop causal explanatory networks, and then do quasi-experimental, experimental kind of manipulation on entities, fields, and change. In other words, that's the basic grammar that we're going to do. Epistemologically, we're going to set up an observer in relationship to the entities in field change. And then we're going to say there are things in the world that are entities that sit in fields and they change. And the argument is that actually a periodic table of elements? Well, it's a bunch of atom structures, standard theory of elementary particles, or there's a bunch of that, or cells, et cetera. These are entities. They have patterns of change. And the task of science is to delineate those. And when you look at it that way, you're like, both that's super common sense and what the fuck, there's this central concept in science that is actually situated to be observed and as epistemologically, and then mapped in the world. And
0: how, how would you say that adds a new, a new lens or is different from what the sciences, how the sciences think that they're doing things.
1: Right. Well, as I say in the book, this is sort of a common sense, so it depends on how you emphasize it. My point is, is that if you, where did the term behavior come from? My discipline, this is, I I write about this, it comes from John Watson, okay? He introduces the term, and I want to highlight that John Watson introduces a term in a way that's very confusing that people surprisingly haven't caught. Okay. He uses the term behavior to connect to the natural sciences, meaning biology and physics. He's very explicit about that. And he says, because we're structured to observe and track stimulus responses, that makes us just like other disciplines. And indeed, it is precisely because this concept is so aligned with the general framework of the rest of science, that's epistemology and ontology, that the word behavior spreads down into behavioral biology and ultimately physics. It's like, oh, the behavior of atoms, behavior of galaxies, physicists talk all the time. Well, the term actually didn't, wasn't around before John Watson. Physicists and biologists took that and now it became part of the natural lexicon. Why? Because Watson was pulling the basic epistemology ontology and then said, hey, we're going to apply this to psychology. But what then he didn't do is realize that he had both absorbed an ontology. Actually, Watson was one of these reductive physicalists. He thought everything was stimulus response reflexes. So that's one point. That's the ontology and epistemology. And But what he didn't do is realize that if he's going to call it behavior that he's interested in, It's the specific kind of behavior that a psychologist is interested in, just like it's living behavior that a biologist is interested in, or chemical behavior that a chemist is interested in, and then you could say physics is sort of the interest of behavior of the whole. But the point of it is, is that if you're going to do, he links the term behavior to what everyone's doing, and then the term behavior becomes specific because it actually gets contrasted to the mentalist. So the term behavior is used to both link it to the rest of the sciences and then differentiate from the rest of the sciences. That's a real problem with it. And I believe people have overlooked the origin of this term and its power for a whole host of different reasons. And I'm trying to make a case that when we put on behavioral lens glasses, all of a sudden the entire science language game comes online as a particular kind of knowing system.
0: Yeah, when I read that, I got wow. I like this, and the reason is it gets to this distinction I like to make. I use it as my shorthand for what is com- the complexity lens, which is the difference between studying the dance and the dancers, right? And that, and and the, the what, I'm, what we're getting at here, and you make it quite explicitly in the book, is that understanding complex systems, or frankly, even fairly simple systems in the real real world, are not just about their static structure. They're about the dynamics, about what's going on in terms of motion and change. And when you get to complexity, where one thing influences something else, and as we know from our physics even something as simple as the three body problem in physics three orbiting planets you cannot actually describe that in closed form so you suddenly get off into this land uh, where we can't know things in a fundamental sense and i think this is a, this is actually a very helpful move to my mind is to en- encapsulate in all interesting phenomena as behavior because it forces you to realize that structure and dynamics are intimately
1: linked. Does that make totally. sense to you? Totally. Exactly. In fact, I reference structure and I basically say a lot of people emphasize structure, but if you define behavior as entity field change, then the structure of entity, the structure of those relationships as static is already implied, but behavior captures dynamic and dynamics not inside of static. So you can place static inside of dynamic. You can't place... Uh, dynamic inside of static. So it creates a whole dynamic process view that can enable us to understand the utility of a reductive view when necessary, but it's not going to be the complete picture and not really going to be able to see the dancing as opposed to the dancers.
0: Yeah. I I think it also fits in nicely with another distinction. I think I picked this up from Dave Snowden, the difference between the complicated and the complex, where the complicated is something you can take apart, put it back together again, and it still works. Like for instance, a, a car that's not running, right? The, key. <laughs> the engine is not running. Do not try to take a car motor apart while it's running. right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, on the other hand, a human body, if you took it apart and put it back together again, it ain't going to work. And the yeah. reason is the human body is involved in a whole million varieties of dynamics that keep it running. And so they, I think that That also fits nicely and is very congruent with the the distinction between complicated and complex. Absolutely. Uh, All kinds of interesting things here we're going to have to... jump over in the interest of time, including, I was going to say something nice about Descartes, because you know, nah. uh, I am going to have to do it, just because we we dump on Descartes so much. The last math course I took in high school was analytical geometry. It's okay. pretty o- yeah, no, odd no, no, no. that we had a whole course, almost a whole course on ana- analytical ge- geometry, a little bit of calculus at the end, but I loved analytical geometry. In fact, it reinforced my naive Newtonianism probably, <laughs> right? but uh, And Descartes invented analytical geometry right. for what no, it's no, worth. No, no. But anyway, let's move on to a big point here. And this is maybe our biggest disagreement, but maybe not. Maybe I just need to understand what you're saying better, which is I think you're saying that there is a distinction around scientific method such that. S- the scientific method, not the scientific method, I'm not, I'm not sure what my right words are here, that the, that phenomenology is not susceptible to the exterior method of study.
1: Okay. All right. Yeah. So one, now I certainly, okay. So we have the exterior behavioral view and, and throughout the book, one of the big points I'm making is that there are two of Major epistemological positions: exterior from without, of which affords the observer that can be interchanged to see behavior. Then there's the view from within. Mind two. We'll talk about it. You know, at some you know, which is your subjective conscious experience from behind your eyes, which can't be directly observed. Now, what I am saying is, if you commit to a science language game, which I do for, as a scientist, it it is not impossible to gain access, but it's indirect access. To the first person phenomenological experience of being i am a big fan of global neuronal workspace theory that's a wonderful way to anal- analyze what i would call mind two. at the same time the nature of what we're getting at is through the veil of behavior physiology and we're modeling we don't have direct observational access to a first person subjective conscious experience of being that's all
0: Okay. Let me drill into that a little bit. You know, I do read a lot in the science of consciousness, for instance, and they have a methodological position, at least most of them do, which is that firsthand reports of phenomenology have probative value. Uh And, of course, we also know that there's more and more, some of it dubious, but some of it useful, things like the neural correlations of consciousness. And we also know that there are studies of brain rhythms and how those might well be implicated in the emergence of mind two, et cetera. And so I'm not at all sure that this, this line between exterior and interior rules out very much about the study of phenomenology.
1: Well, I think it It depends on what you mean by rule out. There's a position that we take, and then we're going to develop a particular way of understanding the behavioral view of the world that in, allows us to infer what's actually happening. Like there's a P3 ignition ship wage if you follow global neuronal workspace, whereby the parietal and the frontal lobe are corresponding, and we see a neurocognitive correlate, and that gives us wonderful knowledge. And I love the modeling that goes on in relationship to the kind of way in which my consciousness through the kind of studies can be understood scientifically. I'm not opposed to that at all. What I will say is the way in which it's going to be mapped by science is fundamentally different than the way in which certain other kinds of behavioral processes will be mapped because of the nature of the epistemological gap that's what I'm saying. So it's a, and and I don't think I'm, uh, not too many people actually disagree with this as far as I see. I mean, people like David Chalmers and the hard problem emphasize aspects of the epistemological stuff. The whole problem of psychology is like, well, how are we going to get our hands? Behaviorism emerges. The early cognitive science stuff avoided consciousness. The reason we're only starting with consciousness studies now is because of brain imaging techniques and the difficulty that we have in accessing it. I'm not saying it's impossible. I am saying it's a different kind of, it's a vector of epistemological awareness or knowing that is opposite to the standard scientific view, and that makes it challenging.
0: Yeah, I think that one of the reasons it's challenging is, yeah, we, we and this is to be clear, uh, I guess we'll talk about it here, why not? Chalmers and the hard problem, the idea of we don't really know why the redness of an apple has that qualitative qualia feel to it. Yeah, that problem has not yet been solved.
1: Right, I, I call that the the neurobiological engineering mechanism binding problem, which is basically, yes, that's a, we don't know the mechanism, but the fact that we can't see redness and really don't, that's part of our epistemological problem. I mean, it's like, how the hell are you getting access to that? So there's two issues there I argue. In fact, I come along with a third later on and then place it in a historical unique context and I'm actually going to generate the word psyche for your unique historical particular subjective qualitative experience of being, which is a totally different kind of knowing than science. I don't I don't think that's a problem. I just think we should know that that we don't necessarily have to have all the same kind of epistemological knowing systems. We can we want to interrelate them.
0: Yeah, I suspect Uh, obviously can't prove that we actually will solve the so-called hard problem. In fact, I'm going to have Neil Seth on soon. And he has, uh, he redefines the hard problem for it to be the not so hard, uh, the not quite as hard problem as we thought it was problem. And he points towards a possible solution. And once we do, I think it will, I suspect, again, this is all just supposition, that it will be as revolutionary as understanding the linkage between biochemistry and life was to allow us to no longer think about life as this black box, which we Uh just don't understand. And once we understand the mechanisms that give rise to phenomenology and the, the quality of our brain imaging continues to go up, because like right now, they claim They, whoever they is, you know, that under certain circumstances, if you're thinking about a daisy, you know, they can scan your brain live and say he's thinking about a daisy, right? (laughs) And as that continues to improve in resolution, and we understand the mechanisms for the emergence phenomenology and what it actually is, uh, which I have a few theories about, we can talk about over a beer. Then this distinction will just uh, gradually go away, and that will just, will just, we will fully naturalize the first person perspective.
1: Uh, you, when we get on to the book, I have an entire chapter on mind to subjective conscious experience in animals and humans. I'm, I'm definitely, I'm simply saying it is a hard ontological problem at the mechanism level. It's hard epistemologically because of the language game is science. It's not impossible. We're making progress. Absolutely. I do make a, then a further distinction between the unique psyche and the general phenomenon of mind too, but that's a that's another issue. I'm trying to give us a vocabulary that's very useful to cut through a lot of equivocation crap.
0: And I agree that particularly the distinction between my one, mine two, and mine three is very, very helpful. And the discussions I have with people about the science of consciousness, oh, my God, how much time would be saved if everybody just used those three, right? So there we go. Now let's move on to the even more audacious idea that Greg has. I think it's the most audacious one in the book, but we'll see when I do the prep for part three, I'm going to, we're going to give it away here that (laughs) uh, we ain't no way we're squeezing the whole, all this whole book into even two episodes, there's going to be a third episode. So, you know, so far my prep tells me that this is the most audacious idea yet. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. It's like mind twisting. And after reading it, I go, damn, he might be right, or or at least it's useful. And, you know, regular listeners know that the the gold standard in in the RUT world is, is it useful, right? And that is the periodic table of behavior. Drum roll with that kind of uh, somewhat hyperbolic introduction. Tell us what the periodic table of behavior is.
1: Lovely. Okay. So the periodic table of behavior, it's a building off of the tree of knowledge system, Okay. And as I asked those questions, well, what are those cones? I was basically, what emerged over years, I don't develop the periodic table behavior until like 2016, 17, first published on it in 2019 in the literature and several different articles I write. But anyway, so what I realized is, well, these cones are growing. So there's an emergence of complexity. They also then, it's not that they represent complexity, it's that they represent complexification. What is complexity? Well, complexity emerges across aggregates. So when you get groups of stuck together, like all those water molecules that make a river, that's a particular kind of emergence of complexity. And then there's this complexification that happens when you get a part jumping up to a hole, and then those holes go into groups. Um, That's what I call levels of complexification. And then there's this big jump in the dimensions. So there's actually three different kinds of complexification that are easy to identify. Aggregates, levels within a dimension, and then uh, the jump between the dimensions. And then I noticed something really clear when I was looking at the organization of the entities that characterize the matter, life, mind, and culture dimensions. And that is that they're, or- they're core entities that organize them. The most obvious entity that organizes the matter dimensions is the atom. In fact, I think it is Feynman who says, if there was one sentence that we could say that science has discovered that is, you know, if anything is true, it's the argument that the material dimension of complexity, using my term, is made up of atoms and the atomic theory of matter, okay? And then if you move to life, it, it's obvious that cytology is a science of cells or cell theory, the argument that the core unit or uh, central structure of living organisms is a cell, it was obvious. If you move up to minded animals, well, the animal is the core fundamental unit there. And at the culture person plane of existence, you have persons, you know, a person or persons that are the fundamental unit. So what then I saw then was that each one of the dimensions of complexification had a primary unit of organization. And from there, I could go down at the level of, say, from an atom to a particle. So there are parts that made up that core, and that would go down a level. And then I could go up a level to create groups so that when a, a, a atom organizes itself into a molecule, they get stabilized too. And then I jump over to the cell dimension. I could go down. There are lots of different kinds of parts of cells. But in particular, once you hone in on information processing, you're like, oh well, the gene is a really important part. Especially, I'm emphasizing the evolution of complexification, and of course, cells jump together, like the eukaryotic cell. If you want to call that a well, it's a partial multicell. It's a complexified cell. But then, of course, they set the stage for multicell. There's also cells that ag- aggregate into colonies. So the point of it is, you go from a part down to a group up, and then there's aggregates across scale but what the what emerges then the same thing in animals you drop down to neural information networks neural networks is the part that are making up the coordinated animal of course animals get into families they don't get herds they get into groups Then you jump one up to the culture and you get a unit of justification. That was the fundamental unit of human information processing, human persons justifying at individuals, small scale levels. And then of course they go into groups and multiplicity of groups and you get the explosion of the human society or multiculture. We talk about the difference between culture and society. But the point of it is, is that you get a 12 step layering system of complexification because each unit, each of the four is a core. You go down one, you go up one. And when you do that, there's 12 floors of organization that I say correspond very tightly to major categorizations in science, at least on the scale of complexification. There are other sciences like geology, uh, cosmology that are more on the aggregate scale. But this unit, tight unit of complexification across these 12 different floors gives me a nice, cool map to organize the unfolding behavioral frequencies.
0: Yeah, I love this. And I can see why you decided to call it the periodic table, because this level of analysis and then the induction that came from it is not dissimilar to Mendeleev's thinking, right? He saw all these things, you know, and they were kind of just isolated facts and isolated, and then beginnings of ways of describing pieces. And then he had this aha moment, right? One of the, one of the great ideas in the history of science. I think most people don't understand how fundamental the periodic table is, totally. not just the chemistry, but the physics and to biology. It's huge, right? Oh, it's absolutely and- central. And so this, you know, it's interesting. I think you're making, trying to make a move here that's very similar, but now let's do the really interesting part, which is, okay. He gets this idea of all this underlying phenomenon, turns it into a Piroc table, and then he populates it with different elements, which Uh was one Uh of the great, holy shit breakthroughs. (laughs) Why don't you start populating your 12
1: floors with sciences? Right okay so on the first floor I argue that the you know the core uh, as far as we know ground of this like before the material dimensions there's an energy information implicate order that's that the periodic table of behavior which is tracking entities and fields this is how entities fields all collapse together and God only knows what the initial state is I call it stuff or an energy information implicate order out of that then comes the emergence of particles okay and this then
0: yeah, let's, let's, let's try to name the science that studies these things too. Because okay. if, if I think of you know, the periodic table of behavior, it starts to look more like the chemistry one if we have sciences in the boxes.
1: Right. Okay, good. So then we have particle physics in box one. We have atomic physics in box two, chemistry in box three. Okay. Then you have genetics, and then you jump over into life, drop down to the life, and genetics- As the primary emphasis of the part, you could also do molecular biology. Yeah, metabolism, you know, without- Things like metabolism, exactly.
0: You need need both genetics and metabolism to have life. Fair
1: fair enough. So I emphasize one part, molecular biology would be, but genetics, then genetics slash molecular biology, then cytology, which is the science of cells, okay? And then really the science of organisms is sort of like biology, but I emphasize then multicellular organisms like botany and mycology- for box six. That's the science of plants and the science of fungi. And and the
0: distinction there is this is before neurons have showed up.
1: Before neurons have showed up. So you have multicellular kingdoms that engage in all sorts of complex behavior patterns, but they're not mediated by a nervous system. Now you jump over to floor seven. That's the base of mindedness. And you get the neural networks and the people that study neural networks are neuroscientists. And then how neural networks sync up, you get a cognitive Neuroscience that then is trying to explain the behavior of animals as a whole. And I would argue then you get animal behavioral science, which I argue should be basic psychology, comparative psychology, or ethology at floor eight. Okay. Then you jump up to social behavior of animals. uh, Sociobiology, which would be interesting, you know, so E.O. Wilson now being placed in the minded dimension, we could see how he's happy about that or not. But anyway, you get behavioral ecology, groups of animal behavior, or sociobiology on floor nine. Then you jump over and you're now in the culture person dimension. The ground of that, the core unit of that is argued to be sort of linguistics. Justification, core reasoning processes of human cognition. Cognitive science would be the primary floor. You know, John Verveke coming in here at the base of this about what gives rise to human aging arena relations of the core structure. Up one is human psychology, that's personality developmental psychology in family psychology, social psychology. That then creates the individual person in a small group justificatory context. And then ultimately you jump up into the social sciences, you get a cultural anthropology as the ground of that. And then, of course, culturals are starting to build lots of technologies. You're going to soci- sociology, economics, and political science, because now we're going to build technologies that regulate societies that actually bridges us off the periodic table of behavior because it's about natural behaviors into things like technology. But nonetheless, we're going to have sociology, political science, and economics as the regulatory structures of macroscopic group, human group formulation.
0: Very interesting, And and it does sort of work, though I'm also going to suggest it's a little bit like that famous New Yorker cartoon that says The View of the United States from Manhattan. (laughs) <laughs> right. And, you know, basically, or, or from, from the Upper East Side, I think maybe it was. And it showed, you know, the Central Park and, you know, the w- Upper West Side and Harlem and then Brooklyn, a little smaller, but it was still about this point, about two thirds, a half the map. And then, you know, the Hudson River and then and then the, the far parts of it was like, you know, the flyover region in California or something. They're very thin little slices. Because I, I count here, you have four out of the 12 being what is today encapsulated within psychology and you have all of social science above psychology in one box.
1: That's a a very reasonable critique. And I think I want to be clear. I want to be clear, repeatedly clear that the unified theory is born out of American psychology and it sits as we all do in a particular perspective that expectualizes and emphasizes certain key elements. I find myself nested in a set of kind of problems and it is skewed, through a particular kind of lens. I also am very clear that we have to be wonder about how psychology should be defined. 95% of psychologies these days are working with humans. 60%, I think, are, or 70% are on the psychological doctor side. So there's an entire way the institution has moved that's quite different from what I'm proposing. I'm very clear about that. And this is a problem we need to navigate. But what I am saying is I see this logic. And if in the 1850s, when we were proposing mental evolution and that psychologists were concerned with the mental evolution of minded animals, if they had grabbed a hold of this, I think this thing could have evolved exactly with an enormous amount of coherence and integrity. That's what I'm highlighting. The ontology is what it is. Let's organize our structures accordingly now that we have a framework for resolving what is often missed in the life To mind joint point and the mind-to-culture joint point that allows us this differentiation to show what mental behavior is in the world. Cool. Well, let's move
0: on to a nice example you give, which is someone goes to a furniture store and is looking to possibly buy a table. You you say that this example aligns with a famous
1: analysis by Arthur Eddington. And the two
0: tables paradox.
1: <laughs> right. So, Eddington was one of the uh, early physicists in the early 20th century. Was one of the few people, according to him, that understood Einstein's general relativity. Also tracked some of the emergence of the way atomic physics into quantum mechanics was beginning. I, I'm not sure exactly. I think in the 1920s he's giving this. What he says in this example is, "Hey, the world of the table." Looks radically different to my phenomena, everyday phenomenology. Okay, my experience of being, hey, here's a desk. If I then bring a scientific lens to that, it looks totally different. It's like this is mostly empty space made up of electrical charges that, you know, are all in constant dynamic motion in relationship to each other. What I play off of there is I can then say, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put on my behavioral, uh, periodic table of behavioral glasses and afford us an opportunity to map this man observing the table through this lensing, through this macroscopic science structure, which begins at things like energy into photons and electrons, and then moves up into atoms, molecules, and then places the individual acting on the table through language like man to behavior and justification. Gotcha.
0: All right, I uh, think you know that helps show, and I think that what's important about this is again these boxes are not in isolation; they all one includes the other, and that's exactly one of the one of the, one of the key takeaways here. All right, let's now move on to a little further af- afield, which I think you called defining mental processes and grounding the domains in meta theory, and then <laughs> mental behaviors and the map of mind one, two, three. This it's was a- an interesting chapter. Uh, And one that's kind of all over the place. Let's see if we can try to bring some structure to your thinking uh, there, which is one of the things you talked about is a guy named Clark Hall and his holdings. Let's start with that. and Keep it short because we're getting short on time.
1: Yep. Sure. So anyway, I know, I want to now pick up the mantle from behaviorism. and I drop down into science, come back up, give you this map. What I've tried to do here ultimately is books about m- mapping science, comma, behavior, comma, and mental process. What I've tried to say is, okay, I've now actually grabbed a hold of science and behavior map that for you. And now I want to pick up the ball again and say, here's behavioral psychology. Clark Hall in the 1940s, a major behavioral figure wrote principles of behavior. I quote from that. I pick up to John Watson and I just show that he's got a particular epistemological angle and a particular way of thinking, okay? I then bridge from that to the emergence of the cognitive revolution in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, where we start to really build models of information processing. And this is sets the stage for Mostly people date the cognitive revolution in psychology in the 1950s, but a fundamental shift happens, Jim, that you're well aware of, whereby we go from, oh, you can't talk anything about the black box and you can just do physiological research on it from a brain-based perspective to say, no, shit, this system is a neuroinformation processing system. We can now build stuff that computes stuff. And then we can model that computing with artificial intelligence in the way the mind works as a computational information processing system. And so I trail that. I articulate the emergence of cybernetics, artificial intelligence, and then trail that history, ultimately get into modern 4E cognitive science and explain the different meanings of cognition, building off of the behavioral contrast, both in terms of neuroinformation processing, and then more embodied, enacted, embedded, extended mind stuff that emerges in relation to cognitive science. And that's going to set me up to say what the tree of knowledge and periodic table say about behavior as minded behavior, you know, minded animals. All right. Well, that's, that's
0: a, a big, good compression, but let's now dig in a little bit into the influence that cybernetics and, and systems thinking had, which then rolls over into the cognitive science revolution. Let's go into those two in a little bit more depth.
1: Exactly. So cybernetics emerges and 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 really shat, flies across the scene from 1943 to 1953. It's a super exciting thing. Cybernetics sort of relates to governance and it's the way a control system works. And what they started to build, which I think uh, I wish this had really continued, was an information feedback system, a negative feedback system where they could build a particular reference goal. They'd have an indicator, they'd have an output mechanism, and they could show that they could basically build a way a system could regulate. Super simple example of a, of a cybernetic system is your speed control, your cruise control on your car. You set it for 75, and then as it goes lower than that, it adds gas. As it goes over than that, the gas comes off. It maintains a control structure. And this then connected to all sorts of ways in which systems might be have nested cybernetic hierarchies, and then what a system was that gave rise to system science. The cool thing of cybernetics was this is an integrative model that could apply to all sorts of different elements. The dangerous thing was it was this integrative model. And in many ways, Norbert Weiner and other people, there's this whole history about how it got ripped apart, sort of broke. And another thing that was happening is they started to build computational modeling structures through you know computer systems which have just input output recursum and those things took off in terms of like trying to solve artificial problems so cybernetics is generally it dissipates in terms of its influence and one of the things about it is that you see the early stuff is uh, trying to embed the mind as a behavioral entity meaning that it's embedded in the environment it's got to make sensory motor choices but when you break it out and say, "Okay, I'm going to try to use a computational system to solve a chess problem," you have now disembodied the mind and just turned it into a recursive computational structure. Now that was super exciting. Computers were super useful, but then that came to dominate the way people thought of mind, artificial computational intelligence as a pure information disembodied processing system. And then what you get ultimately is the return to for e cognitive science is basically, "No, we got to put." the mind information processing back in the neuro and the embodiment and the behavioral acting system.
0: Yeah, this is actually a very important distinction. And some of the work I do is involved with this, which is, you know, the cognitive science, the original cognitive science model came uh, was think significantly formed by Shannon's information theory and the rise of the digital computer and tried to stuff even human cognition into a, the model of computer processors talking to each other over wide bandwidth protocols, and you know it's just not actually so. I mean, it's a, it's analog, it's asynchronous, it's highly parallel. It's a, it's a lot of things, and it's of course embodied as it turns out and embedded. It's and, alive and then minded. <laughs> yeah, and, and and which of course is nice to point back to your argument is that yes, there's something kind of a bit like. Computer information processing at the top, but it's fully embedded in everything else. Totally. right? And that's that, exactly my point. And uh-huh. that that was the early. I mean, not that this that the early cognitive science thinking was bad, but that it was very substantially incomplete until it's now been extended into first embodied and now four E cognitive science. So. Tell us what 4E cognitive science is.
1: Right. So basically what happens is you have this disembodied structure of computation and the 4E cognitive science is starting a bunch of research that starts to show, hey, the way we think about the world, okay, if I'm going to look up to you, I'm going to move away from you. You notice that actually what we're doing is we're, I don't really mean I have to look down and look up. It's a metaphor. It's a way in which I enact on myself on the world. So 4E stands for I'm embodied. Okay. Meaning, Hey, you're living. Okay. You're enacting, meaning you're behaving. I'm acting on the environment in a sensory motor loop system. Okay. I'm embedded in the environment developmentally. Okay. And my mind can be extended. I'll give you an example that they talk about what's extended. And then this get, raises questions about what you mean by the mind. So most people would say, if I'm going off to the grocery store, and I'm trying to remember, I got tomatoes, I got onions, I got bread. And you go through that list and you tell yourself that's all sort of within the mind. But then the argument was, well, if you write it out and you have a list there in the environment and then you use that to interface, isn't that a kind of extended memory? And so there's this big debate about where the mind is. And basically, I argue that actually what the 4E cognitive science people are, are saying, they're seeing mindedness as a complex adaptive systemic network. The traditional cognitive neuroscientists are seeing mind as an information processing that takes place within the nervous system. I'm going to bring a map of mind that defines, uh, shows you where both of those are and resolves what is now an emerging debate in activist interventions by Gallagher in 2018 is basically saying, hey, we've got to redefine the mind. What I'm saying is actually what he's pointing to is mindedness, and we can place the mind and mindedness and really get a good, nice resolution between the 4 e-cognitive science people and the traditional cognitive neuroscientists. Yeah, let's. You
0: know, let's, let's go with that a little bit Where does Google fit into this model right <laughs> or chat GPT or at a more mundane level the calculator or the nav device on your car right go with that
1: sure okay well so let's be clear about what I'm really I'm trying to map natural behavior so as soon as you're in a technological structure you're building off of a different kind of evolutionary trajectory the trajectory of technology and the processing now the issue is, In terms of there's a functional analogy, which is the fact that we're both talking about in both cases, there's an informational recursivity and a computational process that has an input-output functional relation. So there are the analogous structures. They're mediated by different elements. And then we can wonder about, well, what is the actual identity? Well, there's an identity around certain functional analogies. There's a disidentity in relation to mediation. And of course, lots of different things. We still don't have computers that are both playing chess and swimming at the same fucking time, or at least, you know, sequentially. So there's this all this capacity that we humans have. There's a lot of interesting, I mean, at the, you know, a century from now, if we build robotic humanoids that are moving around and doing all things completely functionally equivalently. That'll be an interesting thing. They still won't be minded in my definition, but they'll be functionally equivalent potentially. Absolutely.
0: Of course they might. Oh, I guess well, I was getting at with something different, which oh, was, <laughs> which is if, if I'm here as an embedded human cognitive thingy, I'm also using Google in real time, right? Oh, right. Uh, okay. In fact, mm-hmm. I actually used Google three times during our podcast to look things up. Right. <laughs> you like, sure. how many neurons were there in C. elegans? Was it 307? Turned out it was 302. 32, right. As right. you knew, right? But I didn't. So I knew it was the 300s and a couple other ones. So in some sense, my use of Google is now becoming right. an, an extended I, part. I misconstrued up. you. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. but
1: absolutely. That's that's one of the things about the human condition, the fact that we're in these minded, extended, enacting systems that we can then engage in inf- what I call information interface with new computational technologies, totally extends our computational capacity, and that's going to embed our mindedness capacities all that much further that's the nature of them we're now interfacing with them when we're doing mindedness structures there's a technical dimension but then there's the extended dimension that this is pointing to and that's absolutely the case yeah
0: And that's going to get stronger and stronger over time. This
1: is when we get into the fifth joint point, Jim.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And I don't know. Hopefully we'll have time to do that in a little bit. Look over the horizon next time. So let's wrap up here with your map of mind, where you basically lay out a five-part model.
1: Exactly. And I've already de- delineated the th- three main parts. So one is neurocognitive activity. The second is subjective conscious experience of being. The third is self-conscious justification. So these are the various sort of ontological layers, but as we've talked about, they're different epistemological vectors that allow you different kinds of access to them. So we can take a videotape like we've done here, we've videotaped ourselves. we have access to our moving around, okay. Overt activity is called mind 1B. That's the overt-minded behavior that you can film with a camera. The neurocognitive activity is the information instantiated within and organized by the nervous system. That's mind 1A. Together, that makes up the suite of mind 1-mindedness. And I use the example of a praying mantis. I describe a praying mantis on the hunt. I describe it with riches and detail, has a praying mantis is tracking shit, okay? And then there's a complicated neurocognitive architecture and a complicated segmented body. And I argue that's example of mind one that's a full mind one. Then I asked the question, Hey, is it, is there something that there's like to be a praying mantis? And my answer is nobody fucking knows yet. OK, I, I'm of the opinion that may well have flashes of sensory experience and pleasure and pain. That would make sense. There's arguments I make in the later in the book that justify that. But that would be mine too the extent to which there is a subjective conscious experience of being for a praying mantis. I are, use the example because it, ex, it, it exhibits all the functional awareness and responsivity of a mind one and has a brain and an activity. And we know a fair amount about it. I've studied that for a little while. It's a fascinating research topic. But we don't know about mine too. We can, because of all the stuff you talk about, infer very strongly that my dog Benji has mine too. That means that there is a fundamental experience of perception, motivational drive, emotion, and deliberation that's going on inside of a higher order mammal. Later chapters describe where I think causally that how that makes sense and arises in nature. But fundamentally, the point of it is that's a different referent and we need the vocabulary and it's a different epistemological vantage point. As much as I love my dog, I still don't know exactly what it's like to be him. And then finally. I can tell you what it's like to be me, Jim, (laughs) and you can get a sense of that through Mind 3, my justification system. When I make it public, that's Mind 3B. When I tell myself privately, how is this going and have thoughts that I want to maintain privately to myself, that's Mind 3A. That's my ego talking to myself versus my persona and what I'm justifying to you publicly. So Mind 3B is public out here, verbal. Mind 3A is inside me talking to myself. Mind 2, behind my eyes. And then mind one is my neurocognitive structure inside mind 1A. And then what you see me do is my minded behavioral patterns.
0: Yeah, that's good. Now I'm just going to go, I'm just going to explore something I'm personally been fascinated by, and there's less about it in the literature than I would like. And that is, let's call mind 3A. And the topic is internal talk. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that we don't rank internal talk quite as importantly as we should or maybe maybe there are, maybe I just I haven't I've missed that literature what's the literature about using justification type architectures inside our own head. I think we're pretty clear that my dog doesn't have a, a muttering dialogue in his head today saying, God damn it, I don't like that dry dog food you gave me this morning. Why can't I have my canned? You know, that's mm-hmm. not happening even totally. inside the head of a dog. But an analogous conversation might go on about, you know, the lunch somebody brought to me, right? So totally. t- talk about th- mind 3A and internal talk.
1: Lovely. Well, the first thing we could say is actually there's quite a bit – there have been some studies done on the extent to which people experience this and and engage in their internal – Processes either through monologue, dialogue, I mean, you know, sort of images in their head. Interestingly, five to 10% of people very rarely do this. So, uh, one thing's worth noting is there's big individual differences about how much internal monologue people engage in, with a not a completely insignificant people percentage of people doing it very rarely. I would really like to research the implications of people that do this rarely or not. What I will say is this although, depending on how you define the research as a clinician, okay. Um, I got trained in Becky and cognitive psychotherapy. Becky and Cog- the fundamental insight of Becky and cognitive therapy is the ticker tape of self-talk and the implication it has for how you feel and what you do. In other words, cognitive therapy is the cognitive and cognitive therapy is your internal justificatory system the process by which you make attributions, explanations, anticipate events, and the impact that that has on your feeling and what you do. And it's really, it's a study of whether or not that's adaptive, whether it's accurate and helpful thinking or inaccurate and unhelpful thinking is the entire therapeutic enterprise. And so the whole idea that you go around with a self-concept and wonder what you think about yourself and your self-esteem Clinically is super important, and the concept of the ego is what we use often to describe. I describe the kind of psychotherapy I do as ego-based psychotherapy. That dynamically, that's that, and I don't mean that like psychodynamically, and just the way it changes and operates and filters shit um, and tries to cr- project shit out into the world in a way that feels comfortable. Well, that structure is super important in the psychotherapy enterprise.
0: Yeah, very interesting. You know, I have also read that you know some percent, measurable but small percentage of people at least claim to have no internal talk. Mm-hmm. And I go, how the fuck could that be? Right. Cause I, I will say everything I've ever done in my life. That was interesting. Most of the big breakthroughs came from going for a walk and thinking about it yep. or being in the shower, going for a swim or driving a mindless route that I've done a thousand times driving from Stanton to Harrisonburg, God damn it up 81. Right. And, and it's, it's this, very intricate little dance of one idea leading to the other and then feeding back. But it, and whether it's actually in words or not, I'm not entirely sure. I had a conversation with Ray Jackendorf about this one time. And of course he's a strong proponent. There's something called mental ease, which is different than language. I'm not sure I buy that. I think it's more like language, but anyway, yeah, the idea of not doing that, I didn't, that's just like, just, just kind of mind boggling. On the other hand, I have also read that one of the core, at least phenotypes of depression is what's called morbid, uh, morbid rumination where people are just thinking about themselves and their problems and all that sort of shit. I must say, I never do that. i will get two fucks, right? If I got, <laughs> if I got problems. I'll deal with them. If there's someone giving me shit, I'll punch them. Right. I'm not one to morbidly ruminate about anything, but, uh, but I could see how that if you got caught in that loop, it could keep you from doing all that good kind of internal talk that I enjoy doing so much.
1: Exactly. Well, right. There's self-conscious talk, and in that kind, we don't mean, "Oh, I'm aware of myself and wondering what's going on in the world." It means uh, there's a spotlight that I don't want, and I'm worried about. I feel vulnerable, and and I need to worry about what's going to happen to me. It's that worrying about. It's a feature of trait neuroticism, and as you, I think you've discussed, you're pretty low on trait neuroticism, so that line of, of psychic activity is not ha- is not going to be high. Uh, but people high in trait neuroticism are going to have that self-conscious vulnerability for sure.
0: Yeah, it's funny when I took the Big Five test. Was it last year or the year before? I actually scored at the hundredth percentile of anti-neurotic. Okay, well. <laughs> uh, I had I had some other high scores, like for disagreeableness. I think I was ninety-eight.
1: Extraversion, uh, I think you'd be up there. <laughs> yeah, I was way up there on
0: extroversion and also on openness. Those yeah, were the ones I was sense. very very high on, and lowest possible on neuroticism. <laughs> so, but anyway, you know, I can understand though uh, morbid. Blah, 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 blah. But, and thinking in your internal thoughts and doing most of your good work there. But man, I just, I can't envision somebody that isn't, doesn't have something going on in their head. It's
1: just well, like, I want to be why? clear. When they, what they don't have is just the, they, they basically do all of their thinking and perceptual reasoning, imagining. So they certainly think they have an internal mental life, but the active portion of their thinking is image-based rotation and intuitive non-symbolic thought. Oh, okay. And that's, that's different than so that's the that's the issue. It's it's just not a talking kind of thought. There's certainly stuff going on inside their head.
0: Okay, 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 good, good. Okay, that's good. That helps me be a little bit clear about this, not just be going, what the fuck? Because, yeah, you know, no, for no. instance, what you're describing there is Einstein, right? Who fa- <laughs>
1: right. Famously a...
0: said that he thought in terms of geometry, right? Yeah, that, and, I, that, and he was famously not that good a mathematician. He had other people help him with his math, including his wife. And there's a lot of controversy about to what degree did he steal, you know, some of his best ideas from his wife. But, you know, who the hell knows? Anyway, this has been another great conversation. And we will have you back in a couple of days for part three. All righty. <laughs> hey folks, y'all may be interested to know that Greg is organizing a conference. It's called Consilience Unifying Knowledge and Orienting Toward a Wisdom Commons. It'll be held online March 17th and 18th as a Zoom event and it's free to the public. I'll be one of the speakers, along with several other Jim Rutt Show guests, including John Verveke, Jordan Hall, Zach Stein, Greg Thomas, Lenny Rachel Anderson, Alexander Bard, Lehman Pascal, Max Anderson, and Alexander Biner. Forty presenters overall, and it looks to be a great event. Again, Zoom conference, free to the public, March 17th and 18th, and there's a link to register on the episode page at JimRuttShow.com. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.